Today we are in the middle of our series called Chasing the Wind as we're working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're uh, entering into chapter 5 today. But before we get to chapter 5, I just want to remind us that uh, what we've been learning is that the teacher, which is what Ecclesiastes means in English, Kohelet in the Latin, uh, is trying to help us to begin to see that there are really two paths that we can walk in life. You can believe that the purpose of life in this world is to pursue some kind of profit or gain for yourself. In the short time that you have to live between birth and death, whether it be through the pursuit of knowledge or pleasure or power or wealth, but in the end, the teacher tells us he's tried it all. He's been there and done that. And at the end of the road, there's no there there. It's all just futility and a chasing after the wind. Why is that? Well, he tells us in the first few chapters that the very nature of our human existence, our identity as created beings, as part of the creation that God has made, resists our attempts at fulfillment and innovation through our own strength and our own wisdom and our own power. Rather than understanding life solely as a gift of the God who created us and invites us to experience life as his wonderful, amazing gift to us, those who attempt to try and control their life and manage their lives in order to produce something more than God had originally intended and manufacture some kind of profit or gain for themselves, whether they realize it or not, are really focused on living for themselves alone and are engaging in a futile attempt to be the little g God of their own life. And in the process, we begin to understand or think about other people as objects for us to be used for our own purposes and our own gain rather than as people to be loved in God's name. But there is, however, a way of being in this world the teacher has told us that opens the door for us to begin to experience the good life that God had intended when he created the world and he breathed life into human being and said, it is not only good, but it is very good. The path to this good life, he tells us, entails viewing all of life, including the daily routines and the experiences of living, the eating, the drinking, the toil of work, the good times and the bad times, the joys and the sorrows, and see all of them as a gift from God that he invites us to see that he is the one who loves us, who created us, and wants us to experience the value of living in relationship with him. You see, with God, life can be experienced and enjoyed the way he intended it, but without God, When we're living solely for ourselves or focused on what we can manufacture out of this life that God has given us, everything becomes wearisome and depressing and futile and a chasing after the wind. In the end, the teacher says that he's discovered that it is life that's lived for self and apart from God that is the life that is futile and empty. Wisdom begins to recognize that our human place and the reality of God's world allows us to come to know true joy and fulfillment simply as God's gift of life to us that is discovered as we live in relationship with him and the people that he's given us to love. 
So given these two divergent paths, the teacher goes on today to tell us that we also have to be very wise and careful as we move forward in life as God's people, as for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we could say, and how we approach the life of worship and relationship to God. Because if we're not careful, he says, we can be tempted, even in our religiosity, in our spirituality, to fall into the same trap, the same goal of approaching how we pursue religious, religious worship and relationship with God as a goal to our own ends. That is, we can unwittingly be attempting to use God for our gain as well. So that's where he picks up in verse 5 of or chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Guard your steps on this path of life, especially when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty with your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth, so let your words be few. Now let's pause there for a minute. We're going to work through chapter or through verse 7 today. But first of all, he says, worshipers should take care when they come to the house of God, when they enter into God's presence, when we get on our knees at home to pray to God, when we have our quiet time, our devotional time, and we bring ourselves before the presence of the living God, we should be careful, we should be wise, because we need to remember that God is the intended focal point of our worship. It's not the striving human self that is the focal point and the center of our worship life. The will of God, he says, which was revealed in the word of God to us, should take priority, not the will of the self revealed in the words of the worshipers. Thus, the first most important task of the worshiper is to go near, listen. True worshipers who worship God in spirit and truth, he says, come to worship in a genuine posture of humility and reverence and awe for who God is and for what God has done. By contrast, he says, the sacrifice of fools is offered by those who come to enact an outward ritual of worship, but who have no real intention of bringing their whole selves under the lordship of Christ and under the majesty of the God who created us in an attitude of reverence and awe. They may think they have come to worship God, but in reality, they haven't come for God. They've come for themselves and for what God can do for them. And so in their foolishness, they don't even realize, they don't even understand how they flipped the script upside down. They've turned the worship of God into another attempt to create some form of profit or gain through human striving. And if they just speak enough words or speak them in the right way and they follow the ritual practices, so somehow God is going to hear and he's going to respond and he's going to give them what they want as if God was some grand vending machine in the sky, and if you just pull the right lever, you guys remember those vending machines where you actually had to pull the lever before the digital age? And, and, and the goodies would drop from heaven. <laughs> Is, don't, don't we approach God like that too often, though? In contrast, the wise person comes before God with a singular, humble intention to honor God as God, which means that the person first comes to listen rather than to speak. Now, throughout the Bible, there's a deep significance to words that are spoken. 
God spoke and creation came into existence. Through the breath of his mouth, the Bible says, God breathed life into human beings. When God fully revealed his plan for the world and the salvation for human beings, it was through Jesus that he revealed the logos of God, the word of God that became flesh. That's what John 1.14 says, the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Words are very important in the Bible because they reveal what is in the heart. Jesus said in Luke 6, a good man brings things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Words are important to God. What the teacher is trying to help us see here is that we can begin to evaluate what is, a true, what is truly in our hearts when we come to worship God by the manner in which we approach God. See, when we too quickly use our mouths to, to praise God or to, to say prayers, to, to ask God for his gifts and his blessing in our lives, it, it might be because we're coming for the wrong reasons. We might be forgetting that God is God and that we are not and that life itself comes only as a gift from God who is in heaven while we live life as his creatures here on earth under the sun. So is it possible that without even realizing it, we have allowed our worship of God, our desire to come to God and have a life of spirituality and religiosity, uh, to, to be a life that's really more seeking to cajole God and to manipulate God into giving us the life that we want, rather than allowing God to speak his life into us and to reveal the life that he wants us to live. You see, we think that if we multiply our words and we perform the right actions and we keep ourselves busy enough, we can somehow convince God to do the right thing, which is to bless me, God, right? Rather than first coming on our knees in humility to listen and say, God, speak life to me today. This is essentially what the teacher goes on to describe in various ways that people can try and use words in worship to speak to God and get his response. It says in verse 3, A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words make the, mark the speech of a fool. Now, what, what he means there, right, is when you have lots of worry, when you're living a toilsome life, and you're trying to accomplish all these things that you think are going to make you happy, it, it, it impacts your sleep. Have you ever experienced that? When you're really worried about something and you're anxious and, and you're fearful, you have all these dreams at night that wake you up because your mind keeps working on them and, and it makes you uncomfortable and so it impacts your sleep because you have all these cares and worries that you're trying to sort out that you can't handle on your own. In the same way that, that many dreams come when we're having many cares in worship, many words to try and cajole God and to get God to respond also mark the fact that we're off track from the very beginning. In verse 4, he says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better to not make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, probably the priest. Oh, my vow was a mistake. I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> Why 
Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Or, or, or scholars suggest that, that he would remove his blessing from what you're asking of him. Many words and many dreams, he says, are common indicators of those who toil pointlessly in life to find gain beyond what God has already given. When you multiply your cares and your worry over what you seek to gain from life, it impacts the rest of your life and your lack of joy and peace comes as a result. Literally, he says, dreams come when there is overwork. (laughs) See, it's the same heart of striving that he's been talking about through the whole book that seeks to begin to use even worship as a means to an end, rather than the end goal itself. Making promises and vows to God in exchange for God's blessing become a way of us trying to manipulate God to do what we want, to gain something from him rather than being able to simply offer him genuine worship. See, the temptation of our fallen human nature is to even use our spiritual lives and our religion for our own purposes. But to do so, the teacher tells us, is a foolish misunderstanding of not only who we are, but who we are in relationship to the God who created us. That's why Jesus also says in Matthew 6, verse 7 and 8, when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Whatever words we use to speak to God should be a reflection of who we have discovered God to be, who God has revealed himself to be as we listen to the word that he has first spoken to us. And Jesus, as the living word of God, reveals a God to be, he just said in that verse, a heavenly father who knows exactly what we need before we even ask. A holy God, certainly, but also a loving Father whose holiness seeks human salvation and restoration rather than destruction, and who persistently invites his people to embrace his holiness. That was the meaning of the verse that Tammy read for us this morning. In the Old Testament, when the people of God in Exodus 19 went to Mount Sinai to meet with God, to connect with God, God said, whoa, 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 not so fast, (laughs) You can't even touch the mountain or you'll die or you'll be, you'll be executed. I'm too holy. You can't even approach me. This is the God who appeared to Moses in a, in a burning fire who said, you have to take off your sandals because the place that you're standing is holy ground. Here in Ecclesiastes, this insertion of this passage on the worship of God in the midst of what could be described up to this point as reflections on the worship of wealth and the worship of accumulation and self-advancement in life, along with all the negative impact that comes for others and for our own soul, reflects this broader biblical concern and emphasis that again we see reflected in the teachings of Jesus. In verse 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Or the word here is more accurately translated mammon, which could mean money, but it also means just material wealth or profit or or anything that promises those things in life. It is most commonly associated with, like in Ecclesiastes is challenging us, with the greedy pursuit of gain in life. It is the worship of gain. See, Jesus says, too, that there are two paths that we can follow. And we must be careful, the teacher says, to not deceive ourselves into thinking that we are on God's path when, in fact, we're on our own path. And rather than understanding the holiness of God who calls us to follow him through his son Jesus, we come and think that if we just do the right things or or ask in the right way that we can get God to follow us. and to bless us, and to make our lives easy, and to to take away all of our pain, and to, to overcome our fear. And he says the same dynamic is what happens in the making of vows. See, making a vow is a particular form of speech between humans and God. Right? Vows were common in the Old Testament as part of the worship where, where people would come and they would promise something to God. They would consecrate their, their, their flocks or, 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 or their crops or their money in exchange for God's blessing in their life. And so the temptation, of course, was always to come to make a vow to God in order to get something that people would want, but then to avoid fulfilling the vow that we make to God. This is especially tempting for us, isn't it, when life becomes suddenly painful or fearful or upsetting? Have you guys ever been there? I remember when I was a a teenager, I was probably 14, and oh man, I had this crush on a girl in my youth group. Oh, she didn't didn't want to have anything to do with me though. (laughs) But what, so what did I do? Oh God, (laughs) right? If you would just let her like me, I promise I'm going to follow you more. I promise I'm not going to be the wandering teenager that I've been. I'm going to come and I'm going to commit my life to you. You know, God saw through that. (laughs) Or I remember a story of a friend of mine who I worked with in a produce department while I was in college. He was a little bit older than me. He had been married, and uh, we had talked quite a bit and gotten to know one another, and I knew that he had kind of grown up in the church and was raised as a Christian, uh, but he had kind of fallen away from God. He wasn't going to church anymore, and all of a sudden, one day, his, life, his wife up and left him. She's like, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm done, and she left, and he was just heartbroken. He didn't know what to do. His, his life was falling apart, and I said, well, you know, have you prayed about it? Have you gone to God and talked about it? Maybe consider the opportunity to kind of connect with God and see if maybe God can help. And, and I kind of left it at that, right? And, and we went about our lives, and, and pretty soon one day I found out that, gosh, they had gotten back together. They patched things up. They were moving forward. Everything was apparently going well. And one night, we were closing the store together. So it's late at night. The store's closed. We're you know, setting up for the next day. And we used to have to take these big tubs of onions. And we have to shuck all the onions and get all the loose skins off of them, right? And it took like forever to go through these bins of onions. And I'm sitting there shucking onions. And I tell you, you know, like no other time in my life, the voice of the Holy Spirit came to me so clear and said, ask him if he intends to keep his promise to me. And I was like, God, is that you? <laughs> what? 
ask him if he intends to keep his promise to me. So I kind of sheepishly walked over to him and I said, hey, um, and I was kind of putting, you know, two and two together in my head as I'm walking over. I said, you know, um, when you went through that whole separation with your wife and we had talked about maybe, you know, praying about it and did you make any promises to God? Like, God, if you bring my wife back, I'll start going to church again. And he goes, how did you know? And I said, well, I think God wants to know if you intend to keep your promise. <laughs> but how often do we approach God like a foxhole Christian when we think that life is falling apart and life is going to end and that's the time when we finally decide that we got to go to God, but it's not because we're going to God for who he is and we're following his word. It's because we've gotten so far away from God and we're so lost that we can't think of anybody else and so we go to God as our last resort. Because we know that he's the one who's ultimately in control anyway, don't we? There's a great quote from culture. It is better to remain silent than to be, and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> Lisa Simpson. <laughs> in much of the reading that I'm doing and trying to understand spirituality and worship in our day, I think what we're understanding is that silence before God and reflection and contemplation is extremely undervalued in the constant, noisy, active world that we live in. I think about the constant traffic and chatter that surrounds us every day and conditions us to think that we continue to need this constant noise and activity in our lives and this constant productivity and activity to be able to be happy and to somehow arrive somewhere where we think we're trying to get. And all the evidence suggests that more and more we're becoming afraid of silence. We're becoming resistant to genuine rest. Silence begins to feel awkward and uncomfortable. If you're in a group and anybody stops talking for more than a few seconds, somebody will start talking just to fill the silence. In fact, that's a technique that they teach small group facilitators. If you just stop talking, somebody else will. <laughs> we don't know how to deal with the silence. We're, we're not comfortable being silent anymore. And as a result, we've made it increasingly difficult for us as human beings with all of our technological sophistication and all the ways that we can continue to distract ourselves, to know what it means to, to, to follow the words of Psalm 46.10 where, where God says, be still and know that I am God. In her book, Present Over Perfect, that I've been sharing with you, Shauna Nyquist, who shares her journey of transformation from a life of hurry and, and perfectionism and productivity to a life of learning to simply be present with God and receive life as a gift, as Ecclesiastes has been telling us. On page 61, she says, Pride, for years, has told me that I am strong enough to drink from a fire hose of activity, and gluttony tells me that it, is, it will be all so delicious. But those voices are liars. The glass of cool water is more lovely and sustaining than the fire hose ever will be. And I'm starting to trust the voices of peace and simplicity more than pride and gluttony. They're leading me well these days. 
The more I listen to myself, my body, my feelings, and the less I listen to the should and the must and the to-do voices, the more I realize my body and spirit have been whispering all along. But I couldn't hear them over the chaos and noise of the life that I'd created. I was addicted to the chaos, but like any addiction, it was damaging to me. Here's what I know. I thought the doing and the busyness would keep me safe. They keep me numb, which is not the same as safe, and which isn't even the greatest thing to aspire to. The Bible clearly teaches us that without hearing, without listening, there can be no understanding of the kingdom of God. Jesus repeatedly throughout the Gospels over and over again says, as he does in Matthew eleven fifteen, whoever has ears, let them hear. And in John 8, 47, he says, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. If you think about it, going all the way back to the beginning of God's call to the people of Israel, the very first requirement that God laid on his people in the Old Testament was not, speak, O Israel. No. What was it? Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 5. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And we know that Jesus taught that not only was this the greatest and first command to God's people, but it is through hearing of God's word and through the offering of our whole selves to God as the, the Lord who has called us to give all of our life to Him, a living sacrifice and worship, as we heard in Romans 12, that leads to just and neighborly, loving behavior to those around us in our human family. But silence, I think, gives us too much time to think. Too much time to think raises too many awkward questions that we don't really want to be thinking about or paying attention to in regards to the reality of the situation in our lives and where our hearts really are in relationship to God. About our personal identities and where we're seeking to find value in life in this world. And about our destinies, about the path that we're on and what we think is going to make us happy and what we're trying to achieve through, through our own efforts and life in this world and the underlying suspicion that Kohelet is trying to invite us to consider is that down deep inside, don't we all suspect that it's all just a chasing after the wind? Ian Pravan, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, has this powerful statement. He says, as Christians too, we inhabit an all too noisy space. The noise is more religious perhaps, but it is still noise. We seek to fill all our spaces with sounds and words and activity. We allow ourselves little opportunity for silent awe in the presence of God, but plenty of opportunity for performance in the name of God. In the process, church itself comes to resemble simply another form of human striving. Ouch. He says, the narcissistic, self-absorbed church thus develops 
by degrees to respond to the narcissistic culture. Proverbs 13.3 says, Those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. See, the person who truly understands who God is, the teacher tells us, and who they are in relationship to God, will understand that it is much more important that we come to listen to God that we quiet our hearts and we sit in reverence and awe for not only who God is in heaven, but who he has revealed himself to be through the word that he has spoken to us. And that word becomes a word that addresses us personally and invites us to understand more and more about the God who not only created us, but the God who loves us and the God who has called us to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. That God speaks a word through his son Jesus that is a word that has gone beyond every every word that has ever been spoken since. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus' blood speaks. We've been singing about that in a new song the last two weeks, right? Jesus' blood speaks a better word for us. I want to invite the worship team to come and join me on the stage again. As we wrap up today, I want to reflect on the word that Jesus' blood speaks. What does God speak to us if we've truly come to listen and to hear God's word to us? We remember that Jesus' blood tells us that we deserve death that we don't deserve God's blessing. We deserve to be held accountable for our past and for the mistakes that we've made, for the way we've treated others. But the redeeming voice of Jesus' love and his blood shed for us overcomes all of our sin and provides mercy and grace and forgiveness instead. Therefore, we live and we walk with God's unmerited favor, his undeserved blessing, and we recognize along with the teacher that ultimately all of life comes only as a gift from God. And so he wraps up his section by saying, therefore, we have a choice to make. We have two paths that we can follow, and the teacher wants us to know the better path. And so he ends this section with this summary in verse 7. He says, much dreaming in many words are meaningless, our futility. Therefore, fear God. In Jesus, God has spoken a word to us, and there's nothing more that we need than what God has already given us because he's given us everything. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are patient and persistent that you speak your words of life and love and that you invite us into the holiness of your presence without fear. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we have made our worship into a striving after our own gain. Help us to come solely for the purpose of praising your name 
and receiving life as a gift again from you. Help us to remember, God, that in Christ, because of the word that you have spoken to us, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. On Wednesday night when we were rehearsing to give our best to the Lord and to be preparing our hearts to lead um, into worship here on Sunday morning, we sang the song Anchor. And this is going to sound so selfish, but it's true. I uh, paid attention so many times to the eyes in the song. I have this hope as an anchor for my soul. Through every storm, I will hold to you. In everything, I will trust you. You see, I've always come um, to this song thinking about it being my anchor. It's my anchor. And I'm, I get to have it. And when I'm in a storm, I can hold my anchor. And uh, things shifted on Wednesday night as the Holy Spirit just so pervasively entered into our time of worship. And I heard it differently. And instead, I heard, through every storm, I will hold to you. It's you. And everything I will trust in you. You gave everything to save a world that you loved. Our God. See, not only does the anchor not belong to me, I'm borrowing it, but the boat doesn't even belong to me. The ocean didn't belong to me. That storm, everything, everything, everything is about him. And that was good news because I don't want the storm and I'm not a captain and I'm not strong enough to put the anchor down or to lift it back up again. So I just invite you this morning as we sing together about the unchanging one that you would lift your eyes to Jesus, that you would turn your hearts to a Savior who is who he says he is. The one who provides all things in our time of need.